Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Do you still think the election was stolen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Still. No question. No question in my mind. Brilliant constitutional scholar John Eastman could be so brilliant that he ends up in prison for years for helping mastermind Trump's election plot. Today, he and another Trump co-defendant surrendered in Atlanta. Plus, breaking news in the classified documents case as Mar-a-Lago's IT guy changes his lawyer and his story. And it is very bad news for Donald Trump. Also tonight, new reporting on Mark Meadows' delicate dance with special counsel Jack Smith. But DA Fonnie Willis isn't dancing. Tonight, she's warning Meadows to surrender by Friday or face possible arrest. And we begin tonight with fear. Donald Trump's fear, to be specific. Because Donald Trump's fear has become all too obvious, even for the man formerly known as Teflon Don. On Monday, hours after his bond was set at $200,000, Trump did a tell. He went on his great value version of Twitter and announced that he will turn himself into authorities in Fulton County, Georgia, on Thursday, meaning at that moment, he will be under arrest. This will follow the surrender of some of the 18 others charged in Georgia for alleged efforts to reverse the outcome of the 2020 election that Trump lost in Georgia and every other state he needed. And Trump must be afraid, having watched some of his closest allies, including John Eastman, who wrote the memo proposing how Vice President Mike Pence could challenge Biden's victory by rejecting key electoral college votes, watching him surrender in Fulton County. Eastman is still saying he believes the election was stolen. No question in his mind, he says, despite what White House lawyer Eric Hirschman testified to the January 6th committee that he once gave Eastman this very blunt advice. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. According to court records, another Trump co-defendant, Scott Hall, a Georgia bail bondsman facing charges over a voting system breach in Coffee County, where Trump allies broke into the machines despite Trump winning that county, was also booked today. Records also show that former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis, former White House official Mike Roman, and former Coffee County Republican chair Kathy Latham have all agreed to bond deals with the Fulton County DA's office. And for Trump, it must be sobering to watch his allies getting arrested. I mean, he's used to getting away with everything, right, from sexual abuse to abuse of power, fraud, tax evasion. But now he faces a fourth criminal indictment with nowhere to hide, except maybe Russia, Russia, Russia the place Trump joked about escaping to last night, saying he could share a gold-domed suite with Vladimir Putin, never to be seen or heard from again. See, that's the tell. Also a match made in heaven, or rather authoritarian hell. But there is another reason that Trump should be worried. Late today, we learned that a key witness in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, Yusil Tavares, who was IT director at Mar-a-Lago, recanted 
previous false testimony and provided new information implicating Trump and his co-defendants after switching lawyers. This is according to a court filing by special counsel Jack Smith's office. Assistant special counsel David Harbach wrote in the filing, quote, on July 5th, 2023, Tavares identified as Trump employee four informed Chief Judge Boasberg that he no longer wished to be represented by Stanley Woodward and that going forward, he wished to be represented by the first assistant federal defender. Immediately after receiving new counsel, Tavares retracted his prior false testimony and provided information that implicated Nada, De Oliveira, and Trump in efforts to delete security camera footage as set forth in the surrendering indictment, in the superseding indictment. So we're now starting to see what happens once the pressure cooker is on and people start being more loyal to themselves than to Donald Trump. So what does that mean for the 18 people indicted with Trump, as well as the unindicted co-conspirators in the Georgia case. Just remember, the Georgia case alleges the largest conspiracy of all the alleged attempts to steal this election, literally 30 unindicted co-conspirators and 19 defendants. And make no mistake, Trump has got to be afraid, right? Which is why he's pressuring his party to fix it, fix it now. So the party that denounced the defund the police movement now wants to defund Jack Smith. The party that launches probes into political weaponization is doing just that. Georgia State Senator Clinton Dixon says he will file a complaint against D.A. Fonnie Willis, saying the indictments were sparked by Willis's unabashed goal to become some sort of leftist celebrity. Another reason Trump should be panicking is because of what we're learning by the day about those 30 unindicted co-conspirators in the Fulton County case, identified by a number rather than by name. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution uncovered who they believe they are, and you may be familiar with some of these guys. Boris Epstein, a member of Rudolph Giuliani's legal team. Former New York Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick. Cyber Ninjas CEO Doug Logan. Remember him? He led the Arizona Senate's partisan audit that found Cheeto dust, <laughs> but no fraud. And there are others as well, lesser known figures like fake electors and those who unlawfully accessed Coffee County election data. This operation is massive, involving the most people, multiple states, as well as numerous aides, lawyers, and local officials, and they all colluded to try to overturn democracy in one of the most reliably democratic counties in the nation, a county they could never, ever win, and whose DA knows a lot more about RICO laws than Trump's ban of attorneys ever will. It is a case filled with irony, but also fear. And perhaps for the first time, that fear belongs to one Donald J. Trump. Joining me now is Georgia State Representative Tanya Miller, and, and who represents part of Fulton County, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, University of Michigan law professor, and MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. I will start with you, Ms. Miller, um, because one of the reasons I think Donald Trump is afraid and doing these tells like, you know, I mean, joking about fleeing to Russia, but like, ha, 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 I think that means to me he sounds scared. And one of the reasons I think he's scared is, is Fonnie Willis, because she has literally said, I'm not here to be played with. Uh, Mark Meadows said, you can't arrest me uh, and filed a, 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 you know, a court briefing saying you can't arrest me. And she said, uh, you better be here Friday at 1230 or else I, I am going to arrest you. Right. So is Donald Trump right to fear that Fonnie Willis doesn't have the overdue deference to his former role as president to not put him in jail? 
I, I think he is about to mess around and find out, Joy, exactly who Fani Taifa Willis is. Uh, Fani Willis uh, is probably one of the, I would say, the most straight shooting, straight arrow prosecutors that I have ever come across in my life. What you see with her is what you get. She is fearless. She is fierce. And when she stands up in front of the citizens of Fulton County and tells them what she intends to do, you better believe she's going to follow through on it. Uh, Fonnie Willis will not be intimidated by Trump. In fact, all he will do if he attempts to do that is embolden her to be stronger and more steadfast. That is her reputation. That is how she has conducted herself in her 20 some odd years as a public servant doing exactly this work, standing up against murderers, uh, some of the most dangerous, violent predators in our community uh, who she's been threatened a thousand times over uh, by a whole lot of goons. And none of them have ever dissuaded her from doing her job and doing her job well. So, yeah, I, I think that of all the indictments that Trump faces, coming to Fulton County and facing Fonnie Willis in a courtroom ought to scare him. You know, and Barb, to me, the other tells is not just Trump. I mean, you don't want to go to trial anywhere. But you're starting to see indications that people would like much rather go to trial in the federal case. They're like, we'd really rather be in federal court. <laughs> like, we just don't want to be in court with her. You've got now two people, Jeffrey Clark, uh, who was the former J J Justice Department official who tried to sort of rig the DOJ uh, in Trump's favor, and David Schaefer, who's one of the fake electors in Georgia. They both filed uh, notices uh, on Monday, and they both want their cases moved to federal court. And I just want you to evaluate sort of their reasoning here. Meadows is, is trying to say that what he did was connected to his federal role, his role as working for the White House, which I didn't know one of those roles was stealing an election, but okay, that's his argument. Schaefer is making a similar argument, saying that because he was a, a elector who, in his mind, was an elector for the former president, he was acting somehow related to the Electoral Count Act. Do any of those reasons sound credible to you? I see you're starting to laugh. No, I, I think that these arguments will fail. Joy, the standard for removing a case to the federal court is first that the person be a federal official, and second, that the conduct that's alleged be within the scope of their official duties. And so for both of these men, as well as Mark Meadows, the conduct that's described is not within the scope of their official duties. I think one way to think about it is their official duties are to execute the laws of the United States, in the case of Mark Meadows and Jeff Clark. Um, and this was political activity. This was engaging in conduct that was helping Trump as a candidate, as a in a campaign uh, posture, not in the scope of their official duties to execute the laws of the United States. David Schaefer isn't even a federal official. Right. He, was, he says, now, there, there is a portion of the law that says— or people acting under the direction of federal officials. He is supposed to be an elector casting his vote on behalf of the people of the state of Georgia because they voted for him to do that, not acting at the direction of Donald Trump. In fact, if anything, this argument really plays into the idea that he is simply a criminal associate, part of this criminal enterprise, taking his orders from Donald Trump. And, you know, Tanya Miller, the, the, one of the things I think that it, it sort of baffles, I think, when you look at it and you think about it, but if I were one of the fellow 18 co-defendants, you wouldn't even have to ask me twice whether I would flip. I mean, the, one of these people, <laughs> Kathy Latham, right? Um, she's got a GoFundMe. She doesn't even have any money. 
She had to raise a GoFundMe. Trump's not paying for her legal defense. You've had multiple members, people like uh, Jenna Ellis. She doesn't have any money either. Donald Trump's not footing the bill for them. He barely pays his own lawyers, right? They had to promise, they had to get their money in advance. None of these people have Trump's money. They don't have his power. They can't say they were former president. And so in your mind, would, would, would Fonnie Wills, would DA Willis still be looking to flip some of these 18? Because it seems to me they've got no reason to stick with Trump. He's not going to help them. Absolutely, Joy. I, I think that is sort of rule number one uh, for prosecuting organized crime is you are always looking to flip people who can get you closer to the person at the top. Uh, it is what the federal government perfected over years of, of prosecuting drug organizations and uh, uh, mafia cartels. It's getting folks at the bottom to come in and testify at the top. Uh, Fonnie Willis is no stranger to that. I would expect absolutely that there will be deals offered to folks at the bottom, probably sweetheart deals to folks at the bottom, if they are willing to provide truthful, helpful testimony to the state. I would be shocked if if you did not see folks at the bottom start to flip as the heat starts to get turned up in this case. Right, because, Barb, I mean, the, the reality is, number one, Donald Trump is not paying for your defense, right? And we've seen with the IT guy, if we flip to the other case, the documents case, as soon as the IT guy got his own lawyer and he didn't have Woodward representing him anymore, suddenly he got religion and realized, you know what, I need to help myself here. I need to do the right thing. So we've seen that now in that case. And so it seems to me that anyone who has good counsel, you know, anyone who's got separate counsel from Trump is really in a position where wouldn't you advise, I know you're a former prosecutor, but if you were one of their lawyers, wouldn't you say to them, yeah, sing a song, sing out loud, <laughs> sing out strong, sing. <laughs> yeah. As one of my former colleagues used to say to me, don't ever do anything wrong because if they come asking me questions, I'm going to sing because I can't do time. And so Baby? it was something that we used to, to keep ourselves uh, in check. Um, yes. And in fact, I think it seems likely that among these 30 unindicted co-conspirators who are described in the Georgia indictment but not charged are likely people who have cut a deal. And so yes. these were the stragglers who were stubborn. But sometimes it takes one more step closer to the judgment day for people to say, oh, wow, uh, I guess this really <laughs> is serious. This really is happening. I can't live in a state of denial anymore. But statistically, something like 90 to 95 percent of all defendants do enter guilty pleas. And this is a moment when they have an opportunity to offer something. They can testify in exchange for a promise of a recommendation of leniency. Although, you know, the first people in the door usually get the best deals. Yeah. And these appear not to be the first people in the door. But I I imagine that Fannie Willis would take cooperation from some of these people, if if only just to pare down the field of defendants that they have to worry about going to trial with. I mean, th that's the bottom line, right? It's and here, here's another issue, and I'm going to throw this to you, Tanya Miller. Is that the stipulation on Donald Trump's bond are very specific and, and specific just to him? No one else got it. It's that he is not to make any direct or indirect threat of any nature against a co-defendant. There's 18 of them. Any witness, including but not limited to the individuals designated in the indictment as an unindicted co-conspirator, individuals one through 30, any victim, anyone in the community or any property in the community. And that will include but not limited to any posts on social media or reposts on social media. That is all the stuff Trump likes to do. And so I wonder, you know, D.A. Fonnie Willis, if he violates this. Is he going to get to see the ugly insides real up close and personal of the Fulton County Jail? He very well 
May. Um, ultimately, if if Bonnie Willis received information, credible information, um, I would I would assume that it would have to be substantial for her to come into court and ask the court to revoke the bond of former President Donald Trump in this case. But if she received it, there's no doubt in my mind that she would do that because she is responsible ultimately for the integrity of her case. Uh, she cannot have her witnesses threatened. She needs her witnesses to feel free and safe to come forward and testify truthfully so that this jury can ultimately discharge its duty. Now, Fani can't herself revoke uh, the, the former president's uh, bond. She could ask the court to do it. And then the, then the president would have, the former president would have the opportunity to say why he shouldn't. And ultimately, it would be up to the court to decide if he, in fact, violated the bond and if the sanction should be that he be held in custody uh, until such time as he is tried. How do you expect this to work, uh, Barb, when when he is going to, you know, I guess, I don't know, he's maybe doing it for drama. We don't know what, you know, what the specifics of it will be. Um, but how do you expect this to play out? Because, and I just want you to clarify for me, when you go in and you surrender, you are technically under arrest, right? You've given bond, they release you on your own recognizant, but are you under arrest at that point? Yes, for those moments that you're in custody with uh, the sheriff's office in this case, you are under arrest. They will show up. They will, uh, you know, book him, take his fingerprints, maybe take a mugshot. We don't know about that. Uh, but yes, under arrest. But in this case, it appears that the parties have worked out this bond agreement so that they don't need to go before the court. And they've agreed to these very specific terms, which includes those terms you described about not threatening witnesses or intimidating witnesses. Notably, it does not include the judge or the prosecutor. So he still has some targets against whom he can throw some wrath. But if he should go after witnesses uh, or unindicted co-conspirators, uh, then I, I agree that I think Fonnie Willis has a duty to enforce that order. And, and so does the court, because they don't want blood on their hands if something should happen to one of these people. And, and by the way, May, uh, you know, if I'm one of the co-defendants that I know that that's part of his bond agreement, I'm like, I'm at risk here. Now I'm even more likely going to snitch on this guy. And by the way, maybe they should include in that bond order, don't joke about fleeing the country because you'd be fleeing your bond. So maybe don't joke about that. Uh, Georgia State Representative Tanya Miller and Barbara McQuaid, thank you both very much. And up next on The Readout, Mark Meadows' attorneys are putting in some overtime, trying to get him out of the mess that his former boss landed him in before he is forced to turn himself over to authorities in Georgia and be under arrest, as we just discussed. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. All of Trump's co-defendants and potentially all of the unindicted co-conspirators face a daunting decision. Do I continue to shield Trump at the potential expense of my own freedom? 
Or do I cooperate with prosecutors and face the wrath of Trump and his MAGA army? Now, as we've seen, Trump demands complete loyalty from those around him, but almost never returns that loyalty. Just ask Rudy Giuliani or Jenna Ellis how it's going, paying for their mounting legal bills. There is no one that understands that better than former chief of staff Mark Meadows, a key witness to Trump's alleged criminal conduct and someone who has kept a very low profile the last couple of months. Meadows was not listed as a co-conspirator in the special counsel's election interference case and was barely mentioned at all in the indictment. But he has found himself front and center as one of the 19 co-defendants in the Georgia case alongside his former boss. Today, Meadows asked a federal judge to immediately grant his request to either move his case to federal court or sign an order preventing Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis from arresting him for not surrendering by Friday's deadline. Meadows' team says that they asked Willis for a short extension as Meadows has a case removal hearing set for Monday. Her response was short and to the point. Quote, I am not granting any extensions. I gave two weeks for people to surrender themselves to the court. Your client is no different than any other criminal defendant in this jurisdiction. The two weeks was a tremendous courtesy. At 12.30 p.m. on Friday, I shall file warrants in the system. Ouch. The federal judge in the case is now giving Willis until tomorrow at 3 p.m. for a formal response to Meadows' latest request. Meanwhile, the New York Times has new reporting on how Meadows tried to walk a fine line in his response to both the federal and state inquiries. You can see this this sort of uh, uh, high wire uh, tightrope walking, uh, which, which was how we described it in the story and how it appears so far to have worked for him with the feds, but not so much in Georgia. I do think um, he made an effort, at least with the federal prosecutors, to give them enough information to try to act as neither a pro-Trump witness nor an anti-Trump witness. That was his strategy going in, to, to not be very negative about Trump, but also not to be defending Trump. Joining me now is Temidayo Aganga-Williams, former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th Select Committee. Um, thank you so much for being here, Temidayo. It, it, Mark Meadows is a fascinating case um, because he did, it, it did feel like something was missing in the federal case when you're like, where's Meadows in here? He was just barely mentioned. And then all of a sudden he gets indicted in Georgia. So from what you've been able to see, I mean, there has been fear in Trump world that he was, quote, a rat, that he was somehow cooperating. He did cooperate with the January 6th Committee to a great extent and then pulled back. And then, you know, there were charges recommended for obstruction, but that never happened. He was never, ever charged with, you know, defying the committee. Do you read it as he cooperated with the feds and didn't in Georgia? And that's why he's indicted in Georgia. Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's really hard to tell. What I suspect is that he's doing what he did when we were investigating on the Jan 6 committee, where he wants to do enough to evolve to avoid full culpability, but not enough that he has to stand up in court in front of the public and say what he actually did. He's walking that tightrope, and I suspect he's trying to do that again with these criminal cases. When, when he was, when you all were, you know, trying to get information from him, was he immediately responsive and then seemed to change his mind, or did you always have to drag information out of him? Well, it, it's always hard to tell these kind of cases because you are dealing with a lawyer to lawyer. I right. think what was uh, surprising about him with the Jan 6 committee was how much information he was willing to turn over. I mean, those text messages were a true treasure trove of information for the committee. 
But then he was not willing to sit down and be deposed and really talk about President Trump in a kind of a full setting. And I think that is what you're seeing replicated here, right? He perhaps has provided some information to Jack Smith. There's some reporting that he sat down for interviews there, but he clearly uh, has not fully opened himself up to the government because with with Fonny Willis, he's clearly not cooperating. You know, what's fascinating, right, is those text, I mean, we're talking about the text messages to, like, Fox anchors, Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, like, that was, like, a lot of the text messages that we were reading on this show and that we were reading on MSNBC. Those came from him, so, right, he was giving stuff up, but it does seem like he was sort of kicking and screaming and crying executive privilege when it came to talking to you all, right? But there are some things that he gave up very clearly. We now know, because of him and the first draft of his book, that Donald Trump allegedly left, you know, the Iran war plans, like on a couch at Bedminster. You know, we now know that there was no standing order to declassify any documents. That comes from him. Um, So he is saying a lot that's helpful, do you read him as somebody who, because he's still in Republican politics, he has a firm that he makes $550,000 a year from um, this organization that's a conservative organization that Trump's PAC gave like a million dollars to. So it feels like there's still a relationship there. Is that it? Do you think he's a political, you know, is that what makes him reluctant or something else? I, I think that's a lot of it. I mean, we saw this pattern a lot with witnesses in our, in our investigation. They would come in. They would talk about President Trump. They would talk about high-level Republican operatives, but they were not necessarily willing to go all the way because they both wanted the ability to cooperate. Sometimes they thought President Trump did do something wrong. Sometimes they thought that he was culpable, but they would go out in public the next day and they might bash the committee. They might bash our efforts. They might say words in support of President Trump because they both may have had personal reasons why they wanted to support our work or otherwise think we were right. But they knew there was a real cost to publicly standing by what we viewed as the right way. I suspect that's what's happening here again. Mark Meadows wants to have its cake and eat it, too. He wants to avoid criminal culpability. He doesn't want charges here. He certainly doesn't want the full wrath of DOJ on him. But he's not willing to fully say, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to be on the side of justice here. He still wants to have it both ways. Well, what he seems to have in common, though, is a separate lawyer. Cassidy Hutchinson is the other person who sort of shifted the way that she cooperated once she got her own lawyer and was sort of out from under the auspices of Trump. Uh, Mr. Meadows has a Mr. Terwilliger, who I learned from my uh, producer, Jonathan, today. It's the same last name as Sideshow Bob's real name. Uh, It's a little piece of trivia for all of you. Um, But, I mean, having his own lawyer seems to me to have helped him a lot on the federal side. What do you make of his attempts to move his Fulton County case to the federal side as well? Well, I think it's, if I, as a legal strategy, I think it's a good one. I think if before he decides, if I were his lawyer, before deciding what to do with that case, I would want to know, can I get rid of it completely? Now, as far as the, whether that's a, a substantively a supported move, I don't think so, right? The idea that, you know, I think what's critical here is that Mark Meadows, as chief of staff, was not allowed to engage in political activity while he was acting as as the chief of staff. So I think here, when candidate Trump was trying to overturn the election results, any support he received from Mark Meadows was not in a government capacity. It was in a political capacity. So I think that's going to fail. But I think it makes sense from a strategy position to move the way he's moving and get the results of that first before he decides how to go forward with Fonnie Wallace's case. 
Yeah. Plan A, don't commit crimes. Plan B, get your own lawyer that Trump isn't paying for so that you can have your own legal strategy. Tim Adayo, Agaga Williams, thank you uh, very much, my friend. Much appreciated. Uh, and coming up next, looking ahead to tomorrow's Trumpless Republican debate and Ron DeSantis's plans for a nationwide purge of elected officials that he deems too liberal, just like he's already doing in Florida. We're back after this. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. We now know the eight people who will be on the Republican debate stage tomorrow night in Milwaukee, with the four times indicted Donald Trump not expected to grace us with his presence. This is the first time that the candidates will interact with each other in real time, with everyone fighting to have a breakthrough moment. It is quite a motley crew. There's former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is a Trump critic but won't rule out voting for Trump if he's the nominee. There's Mike Pence, who, despite facing death threats from Trump supporters, won't say if a criminal conviction rules out Trump as president. There's Vivek Ramaswamy, who is currently facing heat for his plan to alienate an entire generation by raising the voting age to 25. And of course, Ron DeSantis, who's promising to do to the DOJ what he's already done in Florida by targeting and purging prosecutors who failed to take the knee. I am now joined by two of those targeted prosecutors, Andrew Warren and Monique Worrell. DeSantis suspended Warren as state attorney for Hillsborough County and suspended Worrell as state attorney for Orange and Osceola counties. Thank you both for being here and returning to the show. And I just want to let you both kind of talk about this. And, and let's just, I'm going to go in the order that you were targeted. And so, Andrew Warren, I'm going to start with you. You were targeted uh, for refusing to preemptively vow to prosecute um, women or, I guess, doctors in abortion cases. So I guess that tells you what uh, this guy, DeSantis, would love to do as president. What are your thoughts on his vow to do to the country what he's done in Florida? Well, Joy, it's really troubling. I mean, there's a reason why Lady Justice wears a blindfold rather than partisan sunglasses and a MAGA hat. And for 150 years, DOJ's motto has been prosecution on behalf of justice, not on behalf of the president or on behalf of the king or on behalf of a political party. But Ron DeSantis wants to destroy that core principle of prosecutorial independence. He wants to do it not because he doesn't understand. I mean, the guy went to Harvard Law. He just doesn't care. But he has shown that he is willing to break the spirit and the letter of the law to promote his own political agenda. And that's extremely dangerous for democracy. 
And Monique Orwell, it feels like, you know, it's not even clear what he was targeting you for other than that you're a black woman who's inconvenient to his politics. Um, and so what does that tell you about what he would do as a president of the United States? Well, listen, we've lost so many freedoms here just over the last year. I think that we all should be very concerned about what that looks like, because essentially, as Andrew said, it's not that he doesn't know. He perfectly well understands that what he's doing is unconstitutional. He just doesn't care. He is an authoritarian, and that is not what this country needs. We need to get back the freedoms that we've lost, not lose more in the process. Andrew Warren, you know, the thing about what was done with the two of you um, beyond just the indignity of, uh, you know, having a governor get up and use you for his uh, sort of political advancement is the fact that you were elected officials because, you know, it, it's not just you individually. It's the you all were elected. So that means that your constituents were told we don't care what you voted for. The governor will now impose someone in uh, that he prefers. Your thoughts. Uh, that's exactly right. And, you know, what's really dangerous about this is that so many people look at our suspensions through a partisan lens. But the reality is it is just as wrong. And by wrong, I mean anti-democratic and un-American for a Republican governor to unlawfully suspend Democratic officials as it would be for a Democratic governor to do it to Republican officials. But this hyper-partisanship is not a new problem. Right. George Washington, 230 years ago, warned us of putting party over country. The problem today is everything is political, right? Not just the candidate that you support, but the social media you use and the music you listen to and even the beer you drink. And that's why it's so important for people to rise above that partisanship and focus on solving problems that makes our country better. You know, Monique Worrell, I mean, the, the, there was a huge scandal during the George W. Bush administration about the mass firing of U.S. attorneys because they refused to manufacture cases of voter fraud that didn't exist. And so this has happened before, but it was a massive scandal. So, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis may be a Harvard-trained lawyer, but apparently he doesn't have a very good memory of the recent history. Uh, it didn't go well for George W. Bush when he did that. Does it surprise you, having dealt with him, that he would attempt to propose doing it anyway. No, it doesn't surprise me at all, because what we're living in now is a time where anything goes. The more extreme that you can be, the more popular you be can become. Donald Trump made this type of outright bigotry OK. So he's operating under that guise. And there are people in his base who it feeds. So he continues to do it so that he can gain popularity among his base so that in hopes that if for some reason Donald Trump doesn't end up with the nominee, that he's hoping to be the second. So he has used us as political pawns in what is now a failing presidential campaign. And furthermore, he's targeted Democratic counties for retaliation for not supporting him in his gubernatorial election. And those are the places where he is nullifying the votes of the individuals who placed both Andrew and myself in office. And this is one of the worst attacks on democracy that we've seen. You know, and Andrew Warren, to, to that very point, I mean, he's using the typical George Soros attack on, on, on all of you to do it. And that signals to me that what he would like to do is to have a federal, uh, you know, sort of team of prosecutors that all answer to him as an individual. That is not democracy. No, it's not democracy. And 
And look, you go back to Nazi Germany, and I know anytime we compare things to Nazi Germany, we have to throw out a caveat. Yes, DeSantis, you know, isn't talking about committing genocide. But the Nazis, one of the first things they did when Hitler took power is decimate the professional civil service ranks and fill them with people who are sick of fence and suck ups. Because when you take away the people who are actually going to do the job, whose loyalty is to the community and to the state and to the country, and you replace them with people who are loyal to the person and not the idea and not the country, that's where you're on this really dangerous road to authoritarianism. Yeah. And it's no different than what Trump would do. And so the idea that he's some sort of alternative is actually quite laughable when you look at what he did to the two of you uh, and what he's proposing to do to the country. Florida State Attorneys Andrew Warren and Monique Worrell, thank you both very much. And still ahead, the Republican governor of Arkansas follows DeSantis's lead, cracking down on what, well, I guess she says is the dangerous trend of kids learning stuff in school. I will explain after this. Earlier this month, the Arkansas Department of Education informed high school teachers by phone that AP African-American Studies was no longer recognized for course credit by the state for the upcoming school year. All other AP classes, including European Studies, are apparently A-OK. Teachers were also informed that the state will no longer pay the $90 cost for Arkansas students to take the end-of-year African-American Studies AP test, which allows them to earn college credit. The news came just two days before school was set to begin, and the decision left scores of kids blindsided. A spokesperson for the department said, quote, the AP African-American Studies pilot course is not a history course and is a pilot that is still undergoing major revisions. Arkansas law contains provisions regarding prohibited topics. Without clarity, we cannot approve a pilot that may unintentionally put a teacher at risk of violating Arkansas law. Months ago, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed an executive order banning teaching implicit bias. She also signed something called the LEARNS Act. Among other things, the LEARNS Act bans the teaching of critical race theory, which is not what the AP African-American Studies course teaches, but the law is vague by design. And last week, the governor, who you'll recall is Trump's former White House spokesperson, lied, as one does, about the course getting pulled and added this additional lie. We cannot perpetuate a lie to our students and push this propaganda leftist agenda, teaching our kids to hate America and hate one another. Despite all of that and all those lies, six Arkansas schools said that they will continue offering AP African-American studies. So, of course, the Arkansas Department of Education is demanding that those schools hand over all course materials so they can make sure the course isn't indoctrinating children. The schools have until September 8th to comply. Joining me now is Chris Jones, the 2022 Democratic nominee for Arkansas governor and author of Quantum Pearls, Finding Spiritual Wisdom in the Mundane Moments. An actual scientist who could have been the governor there had the people been a bit wiser. Uh, Chris, it's always good to talk to you. Um, always good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, good on these schools for continuing to say they're going to teach the course. But hand over the material sounds very Stalin-esque to me. Uh, what about you? I mean, it's the playbook. Uh, it's, it's a shame um, but it, we, I'm shocked, but not surprised that this is the way that she's approaching it because they want to control everything. You ban books and you check curriculum. That's what's happening. Uh, and she's doing it in a way that is really uh, shaking up and disturbing a lot of people. 
Let me play you, because this has always been the thing that I find sort of ironic about uh, this woman, other than the fact that she was a spokesperson who basically just lied for Trump for however many years. Here she is talking about herself during uh, her response to the, the Biden State of the Union, I think last year, or maybe this year. Down the street from where I sit is my alma mater, Little Rock Central High. As a student there, I will never forget watching my dad, Governor Mike Huckabee, and President Bill Clinton hold the doors open to the Little Rock Nine. Doors that 40 years earlier had been closed to them because they were black. Today, those children once barred from the schoolhouse are now heroes memorialized in bronze at our state house. She also said that you know, educating, uh, getting a good education is a civil rights issue of our time. Is it even legal at this point in Arkansas to teach why anyone should care that she graduated from Little Rock High and what the significance of that is? Well, that's the question, right? I mean, that's what a lot of uh, teachers and superintendents are really concerned about. Now, I'm glad that the six schools are stepping up and pushing back. But what it also does is it puts the other schools on the sidelines. It makes them afraid to even think about offering a course like that. Look, it's cringeworthy and a doggone shame that she's a graduate of Little Rock Central High School. And she would be willingly say those things and then turn around and try to deny the history. But again, it's a part of a broader trend. And she doesn't want to just deny the history of the Little Rock Central crisis. But it's also the history of uh, places like Elaine, Arkansas, where hundreds of black folks who were just trying to unionize to get better wages because they were sharecroppers were plowed down uh, that in 1919. And that's a history that she does not want us to know. Why? Because the more we understand our history, the more we are empowered. And this is really a play to oppress uh, so many folks. But I'm glad that there are a lot of people across the state who are saying, no, no, not today. It's not happening. And it really starts with a lot of students who are upset, pissed off and organizing. Uh, and by the way, some of the Little Rock Nine, remember, these are these were kids. So they're still alive. This is not ancient history. They have condemned alive. her. Elizabeth Eckford, Terrence Roberts have both said, you know, they, they attempt to erase history. Uh, it's working for the Republican exactly. Party. They've seen a bo boogeyman that's really popular with their supporters. Uh, and I know these voices are pushing back, is what Terrence Roberts said. But I want to also point out another thing that um, Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is doing. She's trying to erase history because she doesn't want people to know the degradations of enslavement, while she's also signed a bill allowing child labor. To me, these things are connected. Yeah. Yeah. Because, right, if no, you're pushing child labor, which is a new sort of form of sort of slave-type labor, low-wage child labor, not surprising to me that you don't want people to know the history of enslaved labor. Right, right. Because when we don't know history, we are not empowered to make a better future. Right? We're not empowered to understand uh, the levers of oppression that they pull. And so, yes, she simultaneously or it, with the same hand signed a bill that lessened child labor laws, which is a complete travesty again. No, this administration, uh, and again, shocking but not surprising, is a bad mix of malice, arrogance, incompetence, and just outright laziness. And what you get when you have all that mixed in together are bills like this. They didn't even take time to figure out what the implications would be on schools. Uh, and that's why they called two days before school started. It's a shame. Uh, but again, I'm glad that there's so many folks across Arkansas who are saying, not today, we're standing up against this. Yeah, get them born, make them ignorant, put them to work. 
it seems to be a quite uh, broad Republican playbook. Uh, And I guess that's what she's trying to follow, like all the rest of them. Uh, Chris Jones, thank you very much for being here. Please keep keeping an eye on it and we'll have you back. Thank you. Be right back. Be sure to check out the readout blog. Our writer, Jahan Jones, shares a valuable lesson Ron DeSantis should have learned from Hillary Clinton ahead of tomorrow night's Republican debate. And be sure to read Jahan's report on Jim Jordan's ongoing quest to break the Internet. And before we go, I want to give a shout out to one Becky Williams, who is our technical director, and she is no longer going to be our technical director uh, because she's leaving. This is her last day today. I wish we could, like, put the camera on her in the control room to embarrass her. But instead, I'll just say, Becky Williams, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done to make our show better. Uh, We're going to miss you, sis, and uh, enjoy your newfound, fabulous new employment Uh, because, you know, we'll miss you, but You're still around somewhere. Don't lose our number. All right. That is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.